So this afternoon we're looking at Genesis 3, uh, verses 6 to 19, or at least sections of that, uh, of that passage. And providentially, and actually everything is providential, but, but in a particular way, um, it's providential that we're looking at Genesis 3 at this time of year because if we would understand what we call Christmas properly, then we have to understand Genesis 3 because if you don't see the importance of Genesis 3, then Christmas is meaningless. Why is that? Well, Christmas speaks about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And Genesis 3 speaks of why he came. So those two are very integrally related. So that's, that's the connection between them. And just a, a footnote, uh, embedded in Genesis 3, 6 to 19 is a very important passage. Genesis 3, 15, the first gospel. And there is one page in your notes that specifically deals with Genesis 3.15, but I won't be covering Genesis 3.15 today. I, I, it, it deserves a, an entire class all to itself. So I will be carving out Genesis 3.15 and dealing with that, not next Sunday, because we don't have a 2 p.m. class next Sunday, but Lord willing, in the following week. So we'll spend an entire session on Genesis 3.15, because it is really a very important, all the scripture is important, but that particular verse, it, it unlocks the rest of scripture if we look at the salvific plan of God. So that said, um, so it looks like the mic is working properly. Um, it, it, to begin in the introduction uh, on page one, it simply addresses the fact that if we look at Genesis 3, accurately, we understand the historicity of Genesis 3. And that's why we spent such, hopefully, painstaking time looking at the details of creation, because the days of creation are literally normal days. They're not eons, they're not eras, they're not long periods of time. They're literally normal days. And so everything that we read in Genesis is history. That's the genre or type of literature that we're reading here is, is is history. And unless we understand Genesis 3 in particular in a historical sense, um, we won't understand the gospel properly because we, there are actually some in conservative evangelical circles that look at Adam as something other than a historical person. And that's tragic. That, that number one, is not faithful to the Word of God. Um, but most importantly, in addition to that, uh, if Adam is not a historical person, then the fall is arguably not a historical fall. And if we don't have an, an understanding of the fall in Genesis 3, as liberal as Francis Schaeffer used to refer to it as time-space history. In other words, if you had a watch, you could say it was at a particular point in time on a particular day that something actually happened. It was real history. That's the way Francis Schaeffer would often describe these things, and it stuck in my mind all these years. But at the top of page two, uh, one person said this, in the debate on the historicity of the content of Genesis 3, nothing less than the gospel is at stake. And then Calvin made a, uh, John Calvin, the reformer, made a, a very helpful comment. He said, only the doctrine of Adam's fall enables us to know the humbling truth about ourselves. Uh, by Adam's fall, he goes on to say, all our boasting and self-assurance are laid low. And this should truly humble us 
and overwhelm us with shame. So if we understand uh, the historic fall with Adam, then we will understand, if we understand Scripture properly, that we are uh, in Adam's footsteps, so to speak, that as Adam fell, we fall also. And and one of the Reformed uh, catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, addresses it this way. It said, our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, uh, fell from the estate in which they were created. And how did that fall happen? By sinning against God. And what was the sin whereby they fell from the estate wherein they were created? And it was their eating the forbidden fruit. It literally occurred in, in history. And the implications of that are profound. Romans 5, for instance, speaks specifically about Adam's fall and us inheriting, because we are his successors, uh, all of the implications of Adam's fall. Uh, As he fell, we fell in him. He is our federal head. Uh, So we we look at Genesis as a historic uh, passage. So we we look at this, and the question, this comes under the, the section of the explanation of Adam's sin. And someone might ask, so if, you, if you look at the, the spiritual, physical landscape of the world uh, in Genesis 2 and up to Genesis 3, verse 6, uh, you'll look at uh, a perfect paradise. Uh, you'll look at um, complete harmony. Uh, you'll look at um, a, a creation that at the end of chapter 1, it's recorded that God looked at all that he had made, and behold, verse 31 says, it was very good. That's his assessment. That's God's assessment of all that he had made. Very, very good. And then you look at Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam, of course, being given the responsibility, the authority as well, to govern the earth on behalf of God and, and to exercise dominion over all that God had created. And then the Lord looking at Adam and saying, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he created a helper that was meat or helpmate for him so that he could discharge his duties with uh, her um, faithful uh, help. And, and so Eve was created uh, out of Adam. Adam was created out of the dust of the ground. And so the two of them uh, were together without any shame, without any hindrance whatsoever, perfect harmony, no sin in the world. And so in Genesis 3, as we'll see momentarily, sin entered the world and death through sin. And that's what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, and and also verse 14. And the question is, how could that happen? Uh, Under the section, the explanation of Adam's sin, uh, the inevitable question is how a person created righteous could enter into evil. I don't know if you've sort of wandered through your mind thinking about such a thing, uh, but it's a good question. And the answer, and this might uh, surprise you simply because of the way it's expressed, Uh, But Adam had free will, and some of you may recoil and say, I didn't know that the Bible spoke about free will. Well, Adam was created without uh, a sinful inclination, but he had the capacity to exercise good or evil. Uh, So, matter of fact, the the Reformed Catechism says our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will. They they were not uh, compelled uh, to be obedient. They were not compelled to be disobedient. They had the capacity uh, to be obedient or disobedient, uh, and that all changed. That literally all changed with the fall. We do not have free will in the sense of Adam having free will subsequent to the fall. 
but the historic reform position is that they had the capacity to either be obedient or disobedient. Uh, and so the Lord was looking for um, obedience that was rooted not out of compulsion, uh, not out of being forced, but out of willful uh, choosing on his part. And for a time, for a time, Adam was uh, obedient, and for a season, Eve was obedient, and then that all changed. Uh, but the, the understanding is that um, if you look down at the explanation of Adam's sin in the third paragraph, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a, a very historic statement, our first parents possessed the power to fulfill God's law, yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will. That's the historic Reformed understanding of what their disposition was prior to the fall. That literally all changed. Literally, it, it, subsequent to the fall, uh, Paul's statement in Ephesians 2, of course, is authoritative, and all of us were born dead in sin. But that was not the case with Adam at his creation. It was the case prior to the fall. And with the, the fall, uh, we all have been born dead uh, in sin. And what I've done for you at the end of the notes is I've got an appendix that has a number of statements, references, etc., that may be helpful for you to look at this uh, in, in a more uh, detailed uh, fashion. But uh, it, 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 this, this is one of those things. Thomas Boston, the, um, the Puritan, wrote a, uh, an epic work, uh, The Fourfold State of Man, and he describes uh, the moral condition of man prior to the fall, called the, the condition of innocency, uh, and then the condition after the fall, uh, prior to regeneration, then the condition that we have after being regenerated, and then the condition that we have after being glorified. And they're all different. And maybe, maybe you've heard R.C. Sproul talk about um, being compelled to sin, or, but, but we have the capacity not to sin. And that's the condition uh, that we're in right now. We have the capacity to be obedient, uh, and we have the capacity to be disobedient. But our moral disposition is to, to battle with sin our entire life as regenerate uh, men and women and boys and girls. Only at glorification will we be restored to that position where we will no longer be under the dominion of sin, but the very presence of sin. So as we all know, as we all realize, in today's world, as born-again, regenerate uh, believers, uh, we battle with sin, but we have the capacity. In fact, we're commanded to obey, so we have the capacity to obey, and we have a disposition to disobey as well. And so there's this ongoing battle, and that's why Paul in Romans 7 spoke the way that he did about wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death. He wrote that as a believer, uh, and, and that's an entirely different mindset, entirely different disposition than Adam had prior to the fall. Uh, Adam, subsequent to the fall, would have identified with Paul's statement in Romans 7 about the battle against sin. So it, it's, it's a mystery about how all of this took place, but it literally took place uh, in Genesis 3 with the fall. So what did Adam do? And it's important that we look at his culpability, uh, his blameworthiness. Um, what we see, and, and let's look, turn in your scriptures to, or you can look on literally on page one of your notes. I've reproduced this for you. Just, just follow along. Uh, I'm going to read this passage at least through verse 13 uh, for you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. 
The woman said to the serpent, and we addressed this last week, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it or from it or touch it or you will die. And we talked last week about how that's uh, an addition to God's word. It's not literally what he said. God never said you can't touch it. She did a number of things. She diminished God's word. She reduced it. She altered it. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Complete uh, disposition of, of rebellion against God. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it or from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. It's interesting, by the way, in verse 6, that she looks at the tree as desirable to make it good delight to the eyes. In Genesis 2, we read that God had created all the trees uh, both pleasing to the eye and good for food. So part of this was true. And was it desirable to make one wise? No, that, that is not the case. That was the one strictly forbidden uh, of Adam not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but the serpent says you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So she takes and she eats and she gives to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we're going to unpack this, uh, this section and, and talk about it in, in some detail about what transpired and the implications of everything that transpired. But in terms of Adam's culpability, back on page 2, and we'll be getting through about page 11 today, so don't, don't worry about where we are page number-wise. But what happened was when Adam saw the fruit in the hand of his wife, the woman, by the way, she was not named Eve until after the fall and after the promise of a Savior. More about that later when we get to Genesis 3.15. But the scripture refers to her throughout this entire passage as the woman. That's the name that, that Adam gave to her. It, this is a woman. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, right? Remember, that's that. But he named her Eve. And, and save that thought for later because it's very important. That, that was a response to Genesis 3.15. That means life, if that gives you a sense. He was appropriating the promise. So I'm giving you a tip about where we're heading. When Adam named his wife Eve, he was expressing faith, confidence, and reliance in the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 because her name means life. And so he was saying... She is the one through whom life will ultimately come, her successors, her, her children, etc. So Adam looks over and he sees the fruit in his beloved wife's hand, the woman, uh, and she had already succumbed. And what he does is he honors his wife over his commandment from God. There are some 
I think it was John Milton in Paradise Lost that looked at, uh, I could be mistaken, but I think this is the case, that he said that uh, he partook of the fruit because he didn't want to be separated from his wife in sin and separation from God. Well, that sounds sort of noble from a contemporary standpoint, but it's not noble in terms of what he did in active rebellion against God. He should not have partaken of the fruit, even though Eve partook of the fruit. And it was particularly important that Adam partook of the fruit because Adam is the federal head. It was Adam that was given the direct command of God and that we stand in his stead. And so what he did, we do. And the culpability of Adam is directly transmitted to us. That's what Paul says in Romans 5.12. So one person says this, Satan's genius in pitting man's God-given drive for human companionship against his created calling to communion with his maker. In other words, he looked at his wife and he said, she's going to die, and I, I'm going to die with her. And so I'm going to take of the fruit as well. Implications, we'll expand on this later, but he literally treasured the gift over the giver. The gift was his wife. The giver is God. And so he honored the gift over the giver. And how that exactly could take place, it, it's a mystery. How it is that Adam would have succumbed in, in spite of all the perfection of creation is a mystery, but it's a historic fact. Top of page three. The wickedness, the, the magnitude, and here we're going to unpack four dimensions of what took place with Adam's transgression. Uh, what is not a mystery is the fact that Adam partook of the fruit after Eve had already partaken of the fruit, tasted it, and handed it to him. And so we're going to see in some detail what the implications of that are, and they're absolutely monumental. And it's the reason why we have Christmas. It's the reason that, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, uh, Galatians 4.4. If we don't understand Genesis 3, as I mentioned earlier, we won't understand the gospel. Uh, and so uh, this, this is really where we have to, have to start in looking at the implications of this fall. Well, four dimensions, unbelief, just to give you a rebellion, ingratitude, and contempt. All of them are reflected in what Adam did. Um, when we talk about unbelief, Adam looked at his wife, and Adam had previously been commanded by God, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. And he looked at his wife. She had already eaten the, the, the apple, or part of it anyway, and she was there standing with him, speaking to him, offering him an apple, or part of an apple, uh, in direct rebellion against God. She was still alive. She had not died. Physically, she would die. Adam died approximately 950 years later, but spiritually he died right then when he'd partake of the fruit. But he looked at Eve, and she was still standing there. And the commandment from God is, if you eat of this, you will surely die. Well, she hadn't died. So does he believe God's word literally? Does he believe that the judgment that had been pronounced would literally happen? Understand that we have the fullness of revelation. When we've got 66 books, we understand spiritual death. We understand all of creation. We understand these things. At this point, Adam had the direct commandment of God, but he's looking at his wife. She'd already partaken of this forbidden fruit, and she's standing there offering it to him. She was tempted. She was seduced. Adam was not seduced. Adam willfully transgressed against the commandment of God, and it's important that we understand that. So sometimes I think we look at Eve as if she's the chief culprit. Adam is the chief culprit. And what would have happened if Eve had partaken and Adam had not, 
we could speculate it, it's not you know, a profitable endeavor for us to do that. The rea reality is that they both transgress, but Adam's transgression is literally the reason that all of us are born dead in sin. He is our federal head. And so he acted on the assumption that God's word was not true. Um, she was standing there, and, and so she ate, uh, and, and under the influence of uh, Satan's suggestions and the mediation of his wife, uh, unbelief took root in his heart. Uh, one of the commentators of times past, Francis Turretin, said, Pride could never have entered the heart of man if his faith in the words of God had not before been weakened and overthrown. And that's what took place. So we're going to be learning lessons along the way about how do we deal with temptation. I, I addressed this last time, but there are implications here as well. The antithesis of what we see in Genesis 3 is in Matthew chapter 4. In Genesis 3, we see Satan directly tempting Eve, and Eve failing, and then Adam failing in, in, in direct response to that. In Matthew 4, we see the Lord Jesus Christ directly tempted by Satan, and there are some, of the, some of the temptations you recall, it's in Matthew 4. After 40 days in the wilderness, he'd been led by the Spirit into the, into the wilderness to be tempted, and he perfect obedience. Understand... Lord Jesus, perfectly, fully man and fully God. And, and we've, we've looked at this. We have a Savior who can, who can understand our temptations because he has experienced them in an infinitely greater degree than anything we will ever experience. We, 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 we experience temptation and trial to a certain degree, and then we fail. The Lord Jesus was tempted beyond any limit that we will ever have the capacity to withstand, and we fail far earlier than any, than, well, far earlier, it's impossible that Jesus would have sinned, but, but he withstood the full capacity of Satan's temptation. And what did he do? Take these, these stones, these rocks, and turn them into bread. He'd, he'd, who of us standing there after 40 days, still hungry, directly tempted by Satan himself, given the capacity to turn stones into bread, what would we have done? I can tell you what he... You shall not eat by bread alone. Jesus took literally the words of Scripture verbatim with an appropriate context, and he answered Satan directly and rebuffed Satan. There's a lesson there, brothers and sisters. Know the Word of God verbatim. No paraphrases. Learn it with appropriate application, with, with the right context, and use it. And it, it. The Word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. There's just countless passages of Scripture that we should and can memorize and, and apply. And that's exactly three times it's recorded for us that, that the Lord Jesus was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness in a state of great physical weakness, uh, encountering the enemy of his souls directly, and in each instance, what did he do? He went directly and said, it is written. And then he, re and then he responded verbatim from the Word of God, all from Deuteronomy, and with appropriate application and understanding and context. And what happened? He, he showed perfect obedience to the Father. And praise God for that. That's called active obedience. That's an element of the work by which we are justified. We're justified not only by being forgiven of our sins, as indispensable as that is, but we are also saved, we're justified because of his perfect obedience. If Jesus had at any point failed morally, we would not have a salvation. We would not have a Savior. 
But he didn't. He exercised perfect obedience, and that, that obedience is credited to us. And, and 2 Corinthians 5 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's, that's the active obedience of Christ in addition to his passive obedience or his expiation of sin. All of this is of critical importance. But we see the antithesis in Matthew 4 of what took place in Genesis 3. And so the template to follow is that of Matthew 4. So when we're tempted, what do we do? It's unbelief is the root of sin. It, it's, the, the character of sin is rebellion, but the root of, of sin is unbelief. And so our, we have to be uh, buttressing our spiritual life with the, the Word of God. So top of page uh, four. If unbelief is the root of sin, then the character of sin is rebellion. And we have to understand that this is what took place in the garden. And it's what, it's what takes place when we sin. Uh, Calvin says this of, of Adam and Eve. For truly they did exalt themselves against God. When honor, having been divinely conferred upon them, they, not contented with such excellence, desired to know more than was lawful in order that they might become equal with God. And, and we, we have this, uh, this uh, made more clear for us in uh, 1 Timothy 2.14. Let me just read that for you very quickly because it points out the rebellious character of what Adam did. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 12 and following, I do not allow a woman to, to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For, and here's the reason, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. There's a sequence of creation. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived uh, fell into transgression. Adam was not deceived. Adam rebelled actively. He knew better. He, he was not deceived. He succumbed willingly. It was active rebellion against God. And that's what we do today when we sin against God is we exercise unbelief or we fail to exercise belief in the, in the Word of God, the veracity of the Word of God, the sufficiency of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, and we literally are in a state of rebellion. A third aspect of sin that we see in Genesis 3, and it's true of our sin as well, is ingratitude. Look at the context of what took place. What kind of a world were Adam and Eve in when, when sin entered the world? It was a perfect paradise. What could they possibly have lacked? Absolutely nothing. Could there have been anything improved uh, in, in their lives, any better estate in which they were created? A absolutely not. Absolute perfection. And, and so there was an element of coveting in Eve's part when, when, she, when the, Satan said, uh, essentially, uh, God does not have your best interest at heart because he knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will be, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. The implicit statement is God doesn't want you to be like him. The condition that you're in is not really what you're capable of becoming. And that's exactly the mindset of, of much of what takes place today. You think of what you are capable of becoming and this aspect of divinity is embedded in much of what people think about today. That I will be God. I will exalt myself. If that sounds familiar, by the way, it's because in Isaiah 14, uh, in, in Ezekiel 28, you have examples, not examples, you have an account uh, in Isaiah 14 of the king of Babylon. But the king of Babylon was, was a, an earthly example of what took place in prehistory with uh, Lucifer himself. 
Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High in Isaiah chapter 14. I will ascend to the throne of God. Does that sound familiar to what Satan said to Eve? You will be like God. It was exactly what he, he fell to in, in, in before Genesis 3, after it had been created. Somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, those words were uttered by Satan, by Lucifer, when he became Satan. I will ascend to be the Most High. I will, I will be like God. And he offered that same position to Adam and Eve, but he offered it to Eve because he wanted to subvert the authority that had already been created. We looked at this before. He literally was trying to reverse the, the authority structure that had been created. Adam was to exercise authority, not Eve. And Eve was, was tempted. Uh, Adam was not tempted. And, and so we have to, to, to put all the burden on, on Adam's back. But in gratitude, uh, and, and so you look at the, the coveting, the aspect of what took place. Uh, top of page five. When your heart is drawn to hurting or violence, stealing, lusting, adultery, lying, discontent. Remember what God has done for you through the gift of your Savior. Every time we're tempted to sin, we should think about what has Jesus done for us? Think of the price that he paid. Think of the suffering that he endured on our behalf. Think of, the, of what he literally did in our place so that we could have a place in heaven so that we could be with him in all eternity in perfect bliss and, and the price that he paid. And when we sin, it's, it's actually not only unbelief, it's not only rebellion, it's ingratitude towards our Savior because of what he has done for us. And we, look at, we need to look at Christ and say, thank you, Christ. I, I, all obedience, by the way, should be rooted in gratitude, not strictly a sense of obedience out of, of, of a sense of compulsion. Yes, obedience, but, but why? Motivated by what? Thankfulness, gratitude. If, if you've got a child and, and you, you want them to be obedient, do you want them to be obedient out of a, a, a fear of punishment? Or do you want them to be obedient because their hearts are disposed to please you? Obviously the latter. You can, you can force someone to be compliant. I would argue whether that's heartfelt obedience. It's really not. It's, it's just a form of compliance. But, it, but what God is, is most honored by is, is obedience that is rooted in gratitude and thankfulness for who he is and all that he's done for us. And then lastly, so we've looked at unbelief, rebellion, ingratitude, and then lastly, uh, contempt. Uh, this is the, uh, the fourth aspect of Adam's sin, and it's the aspect of our sin as well uh, when, we, when we sin against God. Uh, when you and I willfully choose to violate God's word, and commit what we know is a sin, uh, we're, we're literally doing the same thing. There's, a, there's an illustration that uh, Cornelius Van Til, who was with uh, Westminster Seminary back uh, decades ago, but a, a, a tremendous theologian, he tells of riding on a train with a father whose young daughter was on his lap. Her father had given her life, had clothed her, fed her, given her everything good that she possessed. As her father tried to restrain the girl from sin, she was slapping him in the face. That's exactly what we do when we sin against God. Do you, do you know the meaning of insubordination? It's a, it's a grievous thing. Anybody who's had an experience in the military or, or in the police, etc., they know what insubordination is. It's, it's a, a very grievous thing. It, it's literally an act of contempt against one's authority. And that's what we do when we sin. We're showing contempt for our God. So we're showing unbelief in the Word of God. We're showing rebellion against our Maker. We're showing ingratitude for His goodness toward us. And we're showing contempt for God who has made us and who has sustained us. 
And so all of this is the, 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 the essence of uh, Adam's sin. Well, the consequences, what took place, uh, page 6. Four things. There were four aspects to sin, unbelief, rebellion, ingratitude, contempt, all characteristic of Adam's sin, all characteristic of our sin as well. What were the, what are the implications of Adam's sin? And there were four. Guilt, corruption, alienation, and evasion. And we'll see each one of these. And this, the first one is guilt. And, and when you look at the, the account of Genesis 3, the very first thing that took place, you have the sin occurring in verse 6. And then in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. There's two aspects there. That deals with uh, guilt, and it deals with corruption. The, when we look at consequences of the fall, uh, we have to look at it from two perspectives. One is the immediate consequence to Adam and Eve, and then secondly, the consequences to us as well. Uh, I say that because what happened when, when Adam sinned is that mankind in its entirety fell into an estate of sin and misery. How do we define the sinfulness of the estate into which we fell? The sinfulness is the guilt of Adam's first sin, the loss of original righteousness, the corruption of our whole nature, which is called original sin, and all the transgressions that proceed from it. That's, that's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's the sinfulness. The, the misery is that with the fall, what took place? We lost communion with God. We're under his wrath and curse. Um, we're subject to all the miseries of this life, to death, and the pains of hell forever. That's, that's, those are the implications that took place to all humanity when, the, when Adam fell, in a state of sin and misery. That's the condition into which we're born. That's the condition out of which we're redeemed when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and we, when we're saved. But misery and sin... And, and the guilt, uh, and so you've got both the immediate implications and the ultimate implications. When I say the immediate implications, we'll see the judgment on Adam and Eve. The ultimate implications are all of the descendants of Adam and Eve. Every single one of us are descendants of Adam and Eve. All of us are spiritual heirs of his transgression. So we inherit all of the implications of Adam's transgression, every single implication. That, and then secondly, not only is the differentiation between the immediate effects and the ultimate effects, but some of them are effects of our relationship towards God, and then some of them are effects in our relationship toward each other or an interpersonal relationship. And you'll see that specifically when we look at the evasion of responsibility, the blame shifting that takes place. And that's, that's what, that, that clearly shows up in our interpersonal relationships when we fail to accept responsibility for our own transgressions and we displace that responsibility to our circumstances, our friends, our authorities, whatever it is, and we refuse to say, I'm guilty. It's not, no one else is to blame. It's inherent on us to look for someone else to scapegoat for our sin. But the guilt is the direct result of, of Adam's sin. And, and when he and Eve immediately became guilty, and all of us were corrupted uh, in him. And we talk about original sin. That's the, the condition into which we're born. Uh, because our natures are fallen. Our natures are estranged from God. Our natures are guilty. Uh, our, we, we don't have communion with God. All of this 
as a result of our condition. And you say, but I do have communion with God. Well, that's because if, if that's the case, that's because you've been born again. And you've been delivered from the estate of sin and misery, and you've been brought into an estate of salvation. But before you're saved, your condition is sin and misery, estrangement from God. You have no communion with God. You are his enemy, and he is your enemy. And all of this is the implication of what took place in Genesis chapter 3. And it's so uh, down at the bottom of page 6. Their commission of sin had an immediate effect upon the, the consciousness of Adam and Eve. Their previous innocence was immediately replaced by a sense of guilt and sinfulness. Before committing sin, they had not been conscious of being unclothed. They, they, they were naked and not ashamed, nor was there any reason for them to feel ashamed. What took place? They looked at themselves. What was the first thing that happened? Their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they took immediate steps to cover themselves. All of that is a recognition that something is grievously wrong in my life and in the world in which I'm, I exist right now. It's not the same world I was in. 10 seconds before, one microsecond before, your entire world has shifted. And it, what's tragic is the one thing, the one truth that Satan uttered is your eyes will be open. And they were. Not in the sense in which he, he, he wanted to communicate to them, not in the sense in which he lied to them, not in the, in the sense in which they thought it would occur. Satan said your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. Their eyes were opened, but they became like Satan as a direct enemy of God. And that's so their eyes were opened, all right. But look at the, the lie and, the, and the, the temptation that took place. So top of page seven, he opened his eyes, Adam did, after the fall, to find that he had not ascended to the throne of God, but had fallen to his, from his righteous state and become like Satan in the guilt of his sin. So his eyes were open. That's the one truthful statement that was made. Your eyes will be open. Everything else was a lie. You'll be like God. You will not surely die. And all of the, the think of the lies and the deception that took place, and, and, it, and we inherited all of that. And as soon as they sinned against God, they realized their sinfulness and their nakedness was symbolic of that sinfulness. They saw their nakedness, and, and suddenly that was something dirty, that was something abnormal. It was not abnormal in, in a condition of purity and pristine condition in which they were created. It was absolutely bliss. And suddenly they became aware of something, and it's something. This is the, the nature of sin. Something beautiful becomes perverted. It becomes dirty. It becomes uncomfortable. And that's, that's exactly what takes place in our fallen world. Things that are, God has designed to become beautiful become twisted. They become recharacterized. And they become exploited. And, and it's very uncomfortable. And all of the things that have been blissful for Adam and Eve suddenly were extremely uncomfortable. And they took immediate states because now they had never been ashamed. Think of the, the relationship they had, no shame, just perfect c communion with each other, perfect communion with God, and it was all gone. They did not have communion with God. We'll see in a moment. They went and hid themselves. First thing they did is they hid themselves. They were not comfortable with the voice of God. They knew the voice of God. God had spoken to them. They'd, they heard him walking in the darkness, They in the garden, pardon me. They recognized his voice. But now they heard his voice, and what was the first thing they did? They ran, and they hid because their hearts were darkened, their souls were corrupted, and ours are too, before we're regenerated. This is a condition into which we fell. That's, that's why if we don't get Genesis 3 right, we'll never understand Christmas. Because Christmas exists because Jesus came into the world and took on human flesh 
so that he might redeem us from exactly the condition that we're reading about in Genesis 3. And so there is a connection uh, between these passages. And the corruption is, what what did they do? They, They felt shame, but did they acknowledge their guilt? No, they tried to cover themselves. This is the essence of man-made religion. They, they formed their own, uh, their own answer to their sin. And that's what we do, works righteousness. It, it's, it's embedded in every, every religion, every philosophical stance, whatever the case may be, is you have to fix this somehow with something that you can do. There was nothing that they could do that would fix this. Only God could fix it. And he does in Christ. That's Genesis 3.15. We'll talk about that next time. But they wanted to fix it. And they took their own measures. They took uh, measures into their own hands to, to cut a, a loincloth for themselves, to cover themselves. That's, that's the essence of works righteousness. It's legalism. It's, it's self-justification. Self-justification, by the way, is a, a massive oxymoron. You can't justify yourself. Only God can justify He's the only one who can do it. And he doesn't do it with our works. He doesn't do it with our own loincloths that we have committed our own good works. There is no good works. All of our good works are what? Like like filthy rags. What what Adam and Eve did was filthy rags before God, Isaiah 64, 6. God was not pleased with their loincloths. What did he do? He he sacrificed an animal and he made skins for them. What, What did he do when he sacrificed an animal? Blood was shed. Expiation took place. It was not salvific in in the sense of saving their souls. Only Genesis 3.15 can address that, but it was an emblem. It was a token, just like the Old Testament sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats could never expiate sin, but it showed that blood was necessary, that sacrifice was necessary, and that's exactly what God did when he created his own uh, answer for them. That's the answer. But you, you look at the corruption. The corruption is when we in our own minds Try to formulate, how will I be rightly related to a God who is estranged from me? And that's what they did. And that's what people do. That's what we all do until God saves us. Uh, and, and so the, you've got uh, the aspect of um, unbelief uh, in taking place, guilt and corruption. Alienation, uh, page 8. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but what was the first thing that they did when, when they were aware of this? Uh, they hid themselves from God. They, they literally ran and hid. Before uh, this took place, uh, they had communion with God. They knew his voice. They knew his company. They had communion with him. Uh, the last thing that they would have done before Genesis 3, verse 6, is run from God. They would have run to God. The only voice that they had heard was God's voice, and it was not a voice that brought fear into their hearts. And, and, and suddenly they heard another voice, and, and that other voice was Satan's voice through, the, through a serpent introducing a lie into their existence. And, they, and Eve succumbed to the temptation, and Adam actively rebelled and transgressed against God. And suddenly the voice that had once been uh, a, a voice of direction and communication to them, uh, God himself, uh, in, in communion with them, walking with them in the garden, perfect paradise, was now a horrific, scary thing for them. They lost communion with God, alienation from God. Their communion with God have been broken off. Evasion of responsibility, number four, down at the bottom of page eight. Uh, this is obvious, but the, the question is, Adam, or, or you know, what have you done? 
And do you remember what the answer is in verse 12? The woman, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is not I. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is the woman. And then the second thing is whom you gave me. So really, who is he throwing under the bus? Eve and God. The woman, and where'd the woman come from? The woman you gave me. He gave the, the woman to, to Adam because it was not good for a man to be alone. The same woman that when he looked at her, he was absolutely ecstatic. And he said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He was delighted because God had created uh, out of his own side a, a, a person to be his helpmate, for, for, to help him to exercise dominion over God's perfect creation. And all of that changed in an instant. The woman whom you gave me. And then and what does Eve say? She, she blames the devil. Well, the reality is that the devil did indeed tempt her, but Eve was not compelled to succumb. She was tempted, but she was not forced to sin. In paradise, before Genesis 3, verse 6, no one was compelled to sin. In, e- in Eve's case, it was, uh, she succumbed to temptation. In Adam's case, it was just active, outright insubordination and, and rebellion. But they both shifted the blame, and, and we do that today. Uh, we, we, we look at, at, at our environment. We look at, at our, um, our, our mate. We look at, at our teachers. We look at our children. We look at our neighbors. We look at, at the weather, whatever the case may be, and, and it's something else. It's someone else. And it's not our nature, our fallen nature, to say, you know what? I did that because I've got a dark heart. I, I've got, because of, the, the, because of the darkness of my own heart, I bought forth uh, evil fruit. That's, that's why I did that. Now, if you've said that, and hopefully at some point in your Christian life you've said that often, you say that because now you have self-awareness and you recognize that and you recognize what, what, and, and that you were lost and now you're saved, that you're an undeserving beneficiary of the work of Christ. But an unbeliever is, is, is going to be looking somewhere else. And even as believers, we do that. We, we struggle with where's the blame? And, and generally speaking, the first thing that Adam did was blame his wife, and, the second, and, and, then, and then he blamed God, and then Eve blamed uh, the devil, and nobody took it to heart. So, top of page 10, just in the time that we've got, the, the, the consequences um, ultimately spiritual death. Physical death, 900 years later, spiritual death. You will surely die. Physical death, spiritual death, both of them. But to the woman, pain and childbearing. But there is an element of grace in that, uh, in subjection to the, the rule of, of Adam. An element of grace, it implies that the propagation of the human race will be possible in spite of hardships and sufferings. And it implies that the human race will continue to exist until the seed of the woman shall come and will destroy the serpent. So there is an element of grace even in that judgment upon the woman. And then Adam work was never a curse. It was, it was something that was Adam was assigned to do before the fall. It, work is honorable. Work is, is a wonderful thing. It's, it's not a burden. But the nature of work became difficult, painstaking, burdensome, wearisome, not joyful in many cases. And, and that's the, in, in, in what had become, what once had been his friend is now his enemy, just the, the weeds and the, and the difficulty and the toil 
and what once had been a pleasure is now a painful experience. Before that, you'll notice I skipped over verses 14 and 15, and that's because I'm going to save that uh, for the next time we gather, because, I, I, again, I want to focus very, very specifically on the promise of the gospel. But look at page 11, just in, in brief as we, as we conclude. God asked a, a very important question in Genesis 3, verse 9. He said, um, Adam, where are you? Now, God is omniscient. He knew exactly where Adam was. Why did he ask that question? He, he, he wanted to, to engage Adam in a forthright conversation. He wanted to hear what Adam would have to say because he knew that Adam was running from him. And he was looking for Adam to, to be forthright with why he was hiding himself. And then in verse 11, he asked another question. Uh, in, in other words, who told you that you were naked? Why are you ashamed? And, and, and so it, it's, it's often the case if you've been in, the, in the, the biblical counseling program, you know that sometimes questions are more helpful in exploring people's hearts than outright statements. Well, who engineered that? It wasn't ACBC, it was God. And so God probes the heart by asking questions. Where are you? And, and he asks that of us today, doesn't he? I mean, where are you? And, and, and so the answer is, I'm hiding from you, God. Why are you hiding from me? Because I'm guilty. That, that, that's the most important point that we can reach as men and women, as boys and girls, as the case may be, is to recognize that we're hiding from God. And that's before we, we ultimately turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope of heaven, we have to realize that I'm hiding from God, that I'm not, I have no communion with him, that my, my communion with him is broken, that I'm not the same person that I was designed to be. And, and so he asks these questions, where are you? And that's, again, that's the question that all of us have to answer. And, and if you're a believer, at some point in your life you've said, I'm not where I need to be. I, I'm, I'm not where I need to be. I, I'm not in fellowship with you, God, the one who's made me, the one who's gifted all of these good things for me. And, and the beautiful thing is that God will create when we, when we reach that point and we tell him where we are and we acknowledge our guilt. And that's, that's really all. God knew perfectly where he was and what he'd done, but he was looking for, for Adam to, to admit culpability. And that's what God does with us today is he admit your culpability. Admit the fact that you're lost. Admit the fact that you've rebelled against me, that you've been unbelieving, that you've been ungrateful, that you've been a rebel, that you've, you've been, your heart is corrupt, uh, that you're, you're, you're evading me. And, and that's the first thing we have to do is realize that we're not where we are, where we need to be. And, and spiritually what Christ does for us is uh, he becomes our, our covering and his perfect righteousness is given to us. And that animal that was sacrificed to create those skins, that blood that was shed by the animal is a, 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 an example. It's a, a, a figure, a very deficient figure, but still a, an emblem of what took place at the cross, that sacrifice was made, that a covering is provided. And those are the two elements of our justification, his, his passive obedience, his cross work, where the sacrifice was made, in that perfect obedience to the covering that God provided. They'd tried to provide their own covering, and God said, not going to work. Never does. Let me provide a covering for you. I'll, I'll do that. And the covering is Christ. The blood is Christ. 
And so it, it, if, we, if we get Genesis 3 right, we'll understand the rest of the Bible rightly because it's all in seed form, literally, right here for us in, in Genesis 3. And, and the fall and the answer to the fall. And Genesis 3, 14 and 15, we'll pick that up next time. But uh, I've got a little page on it in your handout if you want to get a, a sample. But we'll, we'll defer that uh, to later.